It is another precious opportunity that we have this evening to assemble on an occasion like this one and to do so with the quietness and the solitude of this hour and also the understanding of the blessing that God has showered upon us to allow us to meet indeed like this. You might have noted as you looked at the bulletin perhaps this morning to gain some view toward the title of tonight's lesson as well as, of course, the title that's on the wall to my left having to do with Bible translations, or that is to say, translations of the Bible. I would hope that we might will undertake a series of studies beginning this evening upon that topic, and that's why I've labeled this part one of that particular series, because in the weeks to come, as we cast a spotlight on various translations, seeking not only to understand the nature of a translation, but also some of the details and specifics of various ones of them. So I hope that you'll be able to come back and be with us each one of the Sunday evenings as we give some thought to the translations of the Word of God. Tonight's lesson, admittedly, is a bit of an introduction to that whole subject as we look at the guidelines and bases for a translation from the very outset. And so it is with that in mind, some introductory words to push us in that direction might well be these. As we give some thought to the matter of these particular translations... The 105th verse of the 119th Psalm might be an appropriate message that we could use to begin. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so one would anticipate or at least desire that any translation ought to have the earmarks and the highlights of desiring to be the lamp unto one's feet and the light unto one's path. And some of the features that I would ask you to give thought to on that slide exactly follow that passage. If the original Word of God then was, as God prescribed, a light unto one's feet, lamp unto one's path, should it not be the case that the translations ought to also fit into and have the characteristics of those same ideas? Surely as you and I would read it, be it in English or Spanish or German or some other particular language, we would certainly have that desire and anticipation that that translation would bear all the marks of authenticity and all the marks of reliability that the original autographs and the original texts would have. That prompts us, though, to make the following statements. Isn't it easy to take the translations for granted? You perhaps go into your bedroom and on the coffee table in your living room any of these places, you just pick up a Bible and begin to read it. After all, you and I are those that are conversant in English, and we appreciate an English translation, certainly. But yet we often pick up that translation, read out of the New King James translation or the King James translation, maybe the American Standard translation, and really don't reflect all that much on where did that translation come from? What might be said about the philosophy of those who, in fact, first made it? It would, in fact, be a fair consideration, it would seem to me, for us to give some thought to those matters beginning tonight and continuing for a, a few Sunday evenings to come. In fact, one word of warning might well, in fact, be before us. I suppose it's tempting to look upon any book with the word Bible etched across its front or etched, in fact, across perhaps the binding and to think that just because it says Bible that it would be reliable that it would be trustworthy, that it would in fact bear all the marks of truthfulness with respect to the original languages, when in fact that assumption is not true. 
Just because something says Bible doesn't mean it's a reliable presentation of the original Word of God. And that would be one of the matters that we can appreciate over these weeks to come. What then are the characteristics of a reliable translation? How should one look upon them and what demands ought one to make relative to those issues? With that in mind, let's then proceed a little further than just our introduction and start asking not only some questions, but to start looking at some of these issues. It seems a fair thing to at least set before our minds what on the surface may be obvious, but perhaps I suspect there's a deeper element to it as well. What about the need for the translations? If we begin our study in the following way, might we take note that the great God of heaven chose to communicate His will with the human family. As great and as omnipotent and as all-powerful as He is, He nonetheless chose to communicate with the zenith of His creation, the human family, and to do so not only by some particular word, but words which the human family could understand. Words that you and I, He intended us to appreciate, and He intended us to recognize and obey that which He has given. Inasmuch as that element of communication then was the desire of the God of heaven, He gave us His Word, and He gave it in tones and in theses which you and I can understand. That does, however, bring us to note this. Those original languages, the languages in which the Scriptures were originally given, were not English. In fact, the Old Testament primarily was given in Hebrew. There are a few passages that were nonetheless in Aramaic. But nonetheless, none of us, at least as far as I know, are able to be conversant in Hebrew or Aramaic. And by the same token, the New Testament was provided in Koine Greek. And thus, those three are an exhaustive listing of the original languages in which the Holy Scriptures were given. It might well be noted that if a given individual were thus very knowledgeable of and conversant in, let's say, ancient Hebrew, that person could read the Old Testament autographs in exactly the language in which God gave them. And by the same token, if one were schooled or at least scholarly and very knowledgeable of Koine Greek, one could read the New Testament autographs in exactly the language in which God gave them. But that, however, does, of course, present the following. Few people are conversant and knowledgeable of those original languages. There are courses of study that one can take in various schools and universities. One can spend years studying Koine Greek. One can invest years studying Hebrew with a goal toward being able to read, analyze, and critique the Holy Scriptures in their original languages. But for you and I, we are in a somewhat different position, aren't we? We are blessed, if you please, with translations. These which have been produced by various scholars who were knowledgeable in those original languages and who used that skill that they possess to read as well as to turn into English or German or Spanish or some other language that which they were originally able to read in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. It is in that regard that you and I can certainly be appreciative of the placement of the various translations. You'll notice some of the features that can as well be noted. It took roughly 1,100 years 
from the writing of Genesis into the writing of Malachi. That is to say, over a millennium passed from the time that Moses penned the first book of the Pentateuch until Malachi penned the last book in the Old Testament. And as God revealed those to the various inspired penmen, He did so in the particular address to answering the needs of His people on that particular occasion. But of course He did so with the understanding that those books were inspired and that they would be preserved so that later generations could also understand the revelation of the will of God in them. The same thing in a similar way holds for the New Testament. Now here, it was penned in a much less period of time. As you can appreciate there near the bottom, only about 45 years from the writing of the first New Testament book until the writing of the last one. Only about 45 years. But just as surely as again those years passed by, we might remember they were addressed to various and sundry individuals or congregations, but they were preserved by the providence and power of God for all subsequent generations, including you and me today, because they were the infallible, authoritative, inspired Word of God. As we now appreciate more fully the interesting nature of these translations, doesn't it bring us to some comments much like these? Just as surely as we've already made note of our station and our placement, I would submit that there seem to be occasions even in the Scriptures when translations would have been in order. Maybe the Old Testament gives us the clearest exposition of some of that. In fact, look near the top of that slide. Isn't it true that the ancient people of Israel often found themselves in circumstances in which a translation would almost have been necessary? For example... When the children of Israel were taken into Babylonian captivity, there, of course, up until that time, they had lived in Judah. They had lived in those confines of what we would recognize as Palestine. And they had been able to speak their own language. However, when they were taken into captivity, especially here we might note Babylon, here they found themselves a far distance from their homeland, they were surrounded by individuals who did not speak Hebrew. They spoke Chaldee, the language of the Babylonians. And so now, after 70 years in this place, we can well appreciate their children had by and large learned to speak Chaldee. Their families had learned to by and large communicate in Chaldee. One can begin to see there may well have been thus a need to express that which was the will of God, but in a somewhat different dialect or a different language. And as if that wasn't enough, we might also notice a little bit later, <clears throat> with the conquests of Alexander the Great, and with the overpowering force that he exhibited toward conquering what at that time was the known world, he brought the Greek language to, in fact, almost all of the known world at that time. What would that then mean for God's people, the children of Israel, who now were in a position that they were surrounded by those who spoke Greek, despite the fact that they, perhaps in former days, had spoken Hebrew? That, in fact, brings us to one of the first major translations of Scripture. In about 280 B.C., a rather notable need arose in which the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures were translated into Greek. 
That translation was called the Septuagint. And in fact, you and I often still see it referenced in terms of references or in terms of allusions. Because interestingly enough, Jesus and the New Testament apostles most often quoted from the Septuagint. As you take note of the name, the Septuagint was in fact made in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. Remember, that was the location of the finest library in the ancient world. And it was fashioned and made by a whole host of scholars who labored in great detail to strive to make a reliable translation from Hebrew into Greek. In fact, that's what gave it its name. Ultimately, there we appreciate the fact that there were some 72 scholars involved in its making in which various numbers were taken out of each of the so-called 12 tribes. Ultimately, as they fashioned and made that Septuagint translation, it today is often recognized or called by the Roman numerals LXX, 50 plus 10 plus 10 more, the so-called Septuagint translation. Here we find then this opening translation, or one of the first major ones of which we have record, and yet how needful it became because after Alexander the Great had conquered the known world, it was this translation that came to be so widely distributed and came to be so widely read. The beauty of the thought of that kind of translation perhaps takes us to note some of the following thoughts as well. Interestingly enough, those translations, of course, certainly continued to be even more prevalent as the centuries rolled by because we understand that the Greek culture didn't rule the world perpetually. Rome took over at some point and Latin became a rather notable language. And thus, not too many years after, and I think it was around the year 1 to 200 A.D., Jerome translated the Greek scriptures, in fact, into Latin. We can also notice translations into German, into Spanish, into French, into Chinese. You could extend that list on and on. At this point, we can now say, this book has been translated into other languages more than any other book in the world. I have actually lost count of now how many translations are, are available. It is astounding. Man has seen the need to translate it from the original texts and languages into others in which individuals can read them in their own tongue and in their own language. And in effect, interestingly enough, we almost see a hint of matters like this even on the day of Pentecost when Peter and the eleven stood up to preach. Did they not say, How hear we every man in the language wherein we were born? Acts 2 verses 5 and 8. And thus it is the will of God and His desire that His precious and divine will be shared forth in languages that humanity can understand and they can he heed it and obey it. As you give some thought to all of those things, it might be fair to take it even to this extreme. What would then be some guidelines that should be put in place by those who strive to produce a translation? What would be some rules of thumb that could guide their thinking and that could guide their work? Well, here are some things that I would submit should be foundational matters absolutely basic, in order to guide the production of a correct and reliable translation. It perhaps should well begin by noting 
the Holy Scriptures must be handled with great care. And they must be handled with tremendous respect. Because after all, if one makes a mistranslation and tampers with it with one's own philosophy and thinking, it can doom souls to hell. Because though you and I may mess up the translation, that won't mean someone won't read it and believe it and even strive to incorporate what they think it says. No wonder we find a number of warnings throughout the sacred text. In Deuteronomy 4 verse 2, even as early as the Mosaic Code, God gave very specific guidelines that His Word was not to be tampered with. It wasn't to be handled lightly. It was never to be added to or taken from. In fact, wasn't it true that God explicitly said to them, Ye shall not add unto the Word that I give you this day, neither shall ye diminish aught therefrom. We notice eight chapters later in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, closing verse to that chapter. God said, Ye shall not add to nor take from what I have commanded you this day, observe to do it. It was to be noted that as surely as Moses, of course, originally wrote it and, and provided it to them, their priests, their scribes, the others were never to add anything to it, neither were they to take anything from it. It was precisely and completely the way in which God intended it to be. Throughout the years, many of the Jews, of course, took great care to make sure that they never added or took anything from it. In fact, one of the most interesting records of Jewish history would surround the, the Masoretic text as it is referenced. They took great pains to try to ensure that no mistakes or copyists' errors or anything crept into the holy text. They did all of that by using a number of checks and balances, if I might use that phrase. They counted the number of letters, for instance, in a particular book like Leviticus, and as the, scop then as the copyist would copy it, they would count, and if the right letter wasn't in the right place, they would throw that copy away. In fact, they never wished it to be found in the hands of any person because they were fearful that it would give the wrong message. And so they took great pains to copy it correctly and make new copies exactly as it matched the original autographs that God had given. Beyond those passages in Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, here somewhat much further along in the Old Testament, God again stated, through Solomon, the writer of Proverbs, the great power associated with his word, and he began it by saying, the word of God is pure. And that word actually means tried. It, in fact, is a bedrock foundation able to provide sustenance, help, and guidance to all to who will refer to it. We notice in the next verse, he again warns, Add thou not unto his word, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. The morning, don't you add to His Word. Amazingly enough, as we come to the last chapter in all the Bible, we have again an affirmation stated. Here, John, as he closed the revelation and closed the entirety of Holy Writ, he did notice again one more time that he was told, Do not add unto His Word, and do not take anything from it. For to those who add to it, till then will be added the plagues that are written in this book but yet to those who take from it. 
their name shall be taken from the Lamb's book of life. Either way is an eternity in hell. Either way is complete loss from the nature of the love and majesty and power of association with God. All throughout the Scriptures, though, in fact, we are warned never to be amongst that number that would take from it or that would, in fact, add to it. A few other passages along that line. In Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, a rather sobering warning was given to those of that day, just as surely as it is still given to us today. But though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul was so adamant in even asserting, I cannot change the gospel, even an angel cannot change it. It is, in fact, as delivered by God, unpolluted. And if anyone tampers with it, be it man or angel, they pollute it. Paul was thus quick to say to those Galatian brethren that only the gospel can save you. Something that man has tampered with or changed, something that man has authored, does not have the saving power of the God of heaven at its back. It might thus be noted even in passages such as 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 2. It was on that occasion that Paul gave an indirect warning to the Corinthian brethren when he said, We do not handle the Word of God deceitfully. As if, of course, there are some who would handle it deceitfully. They'll take it and try to insert into it what they think rather than what it actually said. And might we pause at that point to note this is a critical matter for any translator. The translator is not in the business of interpretation. He's in the business of translation. You and I really couldn't care less what he thinks the text says. His job is to faithfully reproduce in English, let's say, what the original Greek set forth. His business is not to insert what he thinks the text says. For his own ideology may be wrong. His own impressions due to denominational dogma may in fact be entirely misleading. And in fact, on not a few occasions, that has been a problem for various and sundry translations, hasn't it? Even beyond those matters, we can notice in 2 Peter 3 verse 16 that even Peter gave the interesting reflection that some things that Paul wrote were hard to be understood, but those who rest it, W-R-E-S-T, do so to their own destruction. Thus, it is possible to rest the Scriptures. And that word means to twist it. It means to mishandle it. It means to misinterpret it and to set it forth that way. Oh, what a danger lurks amongst those translations that have been rested, W-R-E-S-T-E-D. And so it is that in light of these matters, the first groundbreaking thought surely for any translator must be to faithfully and carefully handle the text so that there's no deception involved. As you come near the bottom of that slide, we can notice again the seriousness that may well come from a translator's attempt to interpret. One of the passages that rings so powerful in our mind surely might well be John 10, 35. The Lord in a thunderous tone said, The Scripture cannot be broken. 
Now, man may mishandle it, and man, by virtue of translation, may assert what the text never actually said, but Jesus said the text, the Word, cannot be broken. Thus, even though a translator may put forth a very poor translation, and men and women may believe it, that won't change what they're going to answer to on the day of judgment. It won't change the fact they'll give answer to what the truth was as God originally set forth. And therein lies a tremendous tragedy, isn't it? A translator who misleads precious souls because of a terrible, misleading, deceitful translation. Something that set forth a matter that never was the truth of God. In light of all of that, isn't it fair to say that they, as well as all of us, should have a great fearful respect for the Word of God, for how special and how precious it really is. With those things in mind, perhaps one final set of ideas tonight as we perhaps start our series of lessons on the subject of these matters. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse number 12, we have a rather sobering warning. Of the making of many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. We shouldn't encourage our youngsters to try to use that to help them not to help them get out of studying, of course, because the thought surrounding that was not the idea that one might misuse it to say. Of the making of many books, there is no end. The human family throughout the centuries has produced almost countless volumes. And our current Library of Congress is filled with volumes and volumes of books that men have written. But may we always remember none of them can take the place of the one God wrote. And He only wrote one book. He hasn't written a multiplicity of them. He hasn't written a whole host of them. In fact, not even two of them. There is but one book that God wrote and this is it. No wonder it's a unique text. And isn't it lovely to think about the word unique? Quite often as we give thought to what the word unique means, sometimes it's used to appreciate there's only a few of a certain item. If that be true, surely this is almost the definition of uniqueness because there's only one of it. There's not even two. God penned, authored, set forth, delivered, revealed, but one book. And the Holy Scriptures are it. With regard to that, the treatment then of it with great respect and with great adoration should help us appreciate the role the translator should and must have in his great care in his handling of the sacred text. Doesn't that bring us, though, to some of these problems? And I do use the word carefully, problems. You and I have perhaps heard for years, maybe all of our lives, how that there are those in our world who encourage individuals, be a part of the church of your choice. There's many a so-called preacher who will encourage his listeners, his auditors, you believe Jesus, but then you just join the church of your choice. It would perhaps be difficult to pin a more untrue statement than that one. It just simply isn't true because there's only one church, Ephesians 4.4. 4. It's not as if one can choose the one of your choice. There's only one of them. It is absolutely and pristinely unique, isn't it? But might we know the same kind of thing is now capable of being said with respect to the so-called Bible. 
Read the Bible of your choice. Pick up and purchase the Bible that you like. Because believe it or not, it's now easily possible to find a Bible that pretty much will teach what you want it to teach. If you want a Bible that teaches faith only, you can go buy one. It'll say Bible on the front of it. But of course, it's not the unadulterated Word of God inside. If you want a Bible that teaches Pentecostalism, as if to say the actual, literal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you can find one. All one has to do is just go search, find it, and buy it. What a grave danger. It thus would sound as if the Bible is basically being remade into whatever the customer wants it to say. And isn't that a horrible tragedy? Isn't that an unspeakable sadness? Because obviously it simply isn't the Word of God anymore. It has been tailored and made to say what I want it to say. If you want a Bible that makes Catholicism sound right, you can find one. If you want a Bible that makes the whole matter of, say, the Baptist persuasion sound right, you can go find one. The Bible of your choice. As we noted earlier, though, God just wrote one book. The thought of having it remade and certain verses restated and recast, perhaps removed altogether, almost unbelievable. If you want a Bible that's shorter, you can find one. You might remember the Reader's Digest translation of the Bible that came out a few years ago that was only about one-third the length of this one. So if you want a shorter Bible, you can find one. Obviously, a great deal of it's cut out, removed, no longer there, but it still says Bible on the front of it. All of this points us to the fact that the translators have a serious business. And it is a shame that throughout the years, many of them haven't taken their job very seriously. They have been misguided by a philosophy that was no good. They have been led by a tactical approach whose end led the readers nowhere in the right place. Perhaps in the final analysis, what a future danger than there could be. When you think about a group of translators that have produced something that says Bible, but they've changed the character of the church that's described in it, They've altered the plan of salvation as God originally gave it. They've changed completely the notion of the organizational structure of the church, and yet the translations have done it. It's no wonder we must be a bit cautious and careful, not only in the translation that we study from, but in what we encourage our children to use, what we allow them to, to become familiar with. Translating the Holy Word is a very serious business. We can be thankful there are some reliable translations. I've listed some of the problems that one can find. And yet as you look at that listing, you might notice one of the thoughts was there are translations that will call into question the nature of water baptism, believe it or not. Surely you and I would want to be very cautious in reading translations like that or at least using them on a frequent basis as we make some of the final conclusions and thoughts in our lesson this evening, over the succeeding weeks, we will strive to look at several of the translations and even point out some of the verses and passages that are potentially problematic and difficult. 
but also to, in fact, bring to our own mind what are some of these translations on which we can rest the credibility of the salvation of our soul and feel comfortable in doing it. That'll be some of the goals that we'll set before us for the weeks that follow. As we draw this lesson to a close tonight, the thought that we have begun at least to consider in the series has been the placement of the Bible translations and understanding of the need for them and also the basic feature of what is no doubt the most important guiding premise of all, to faithfully handle the original text and simply translate it into, a new, into another language. Not to interpret, not to set forth one's own viewpoint, but to merely translate from one language into another. Tonight, as you think about the nature of the translations, the text that was read for us as a lesson text this evening was this one, taken from Habakkuk 2, verse 2. On that occasion, God told the great prophet, Write the vision, make it plain, that those who read it may run. That should have been a guiding philosophy to all the translations to simply bring God's Word into the language of interest and do so so plainly, so directly, that those who read it couldn't help but at once obey it and run. It is again a tremendous tragedy that that all too often has not been the guiding premise. Tonight, God's plan of salvation is faithfully known to those who appreciate the text of the Word of God. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God with all your heart, Repent of the sins in your life. Confess the great name of Jesus as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of your sins. That is taught to us so clearly in the New Testament. If you have at one time attended to that matter, but you haven't been faithful to that calling, you have long ago perhaps slipped into unfaithfulness, why not come back to your first love tonight? We would be more than excited, as with the angels, Luke 15, 7, to pray with you and for you. We would only ask you let us know in what way we could be of assistance to you and that you would do that without delay while together we stand and while we sing.